Dissident Daughters podcast. I'm your host, Ada, and I'm here deconstructing my Mormon faith and making space for other women like me to do the same. If you don't know what a dissident daughter is, well, it's a woman who actively challenges an established political or religious system, doctrine, belief, policy, or institution. And that's why I'm here, to challenge the Mormon faith as an institution, its doctrine and policies, If you want to come along on this journey with me, stick around and we'll do some talking, laughing, maybe crying, (laughs) venting, deconstructing. We'll learn some new things, hopefully, and most importantly, be supported through this difficult journey. I'm glad you're here. Hello, welcome to part two of the stories of my life. If you haven't listened to the first part, you should go back and listen to that first. In the first episode, I had to give a trigger warning uh, about conversations around suicide. In this one, I'm going to give uh, a different trigger warning, and that is that if you are my son, you probably shouldn't listen to this. (laughs) I'm going to be talking about you. not all good. Let's just be honest. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to continue on um, with the story of my life from the time I got married, which is where I got to in in the first part. But there was just a couple things that I kind of skipped and realized later that I wanted to go back and talk about. One of them was a little bit more about my handicapped sister. And the other thing was my first time going through the temple. Those are both super important things that happened. So I want to just jump back just for a minute and tell these things. So in the first one, I talked to you about how my handicapped sister went blind around the age of 14 or 15. Before that time, she was really hard for my parents to control and keep track of. Like she would wander off and even run away regularly. She loved to run. And they had several scary incidents where she crossed busy streets and you know, was like miles away before they realized she was gone. So my parents almost like saw it as a blessing when she went blind. And I think that is super crappy. uh, And that never sat quite right with me. But I remember my mom saying things like that, like, well, at least now it's easier to keep track of her. (laughs) Maybe that was just their way of trying to make themselves feel better about the situation. Nevertheless, she had to learn how to do things being blind now. And we moved shortly after she had gone blind to a new home across town. And it was one of those multi-level homes where there's lots of like partial floors with stairs in between. So there's just tons of stairs. And so that was a little scary, but she did. She did really well. Um, Whenever we went somewhere, really like the only time she left the house, she did go to school. She went to a special school. Um, The bus would come and pick her up and my mom would walk her out to get on the bus and um, she was always very excited to go to school. Other than that, she went to church, you know, and when we would go to church, she would just kind of hold on to my mom's arm and my mom would guide her around. So she never like used a a walking stick or a a cane thing like some blind people do. Uh, She never really went anywhere without a person that she was holding on to. So Her, her other senses really were heightened, which I know, like we hear about that all the time, but it, it is no joke. Like her, her sense of touch and her sense of her, her hearing was super heightened. Like we would even, (laughs) 
we we thought it was funny to kind of like test her. We would joke around with her and try to sneak up on her sometimes to see if she could hear us. But we always got caught. She always knew when we were trying to do that. We Maybe we weren't very quiet or maybe she was just had really good hearing. But she would laugh along with us and she would always give a hearty hello to anyone who walked through the door. And oftentimes she could tell exactly who it was even before they said anything just by the way they... I don't I don't know if it's by their footsteps or the sounds they made as they came in the door, but oftentimes she would be able to guess who it was. Not always with perfect accuracy, but she was always very happy to have people coming to the house. And most often you would find her sitting in a rocker chair in the front room. She loved listening to music and my mom always had music on for her. So I think she had decent health for the most part after going blind until she was about 24, so about about 10 years later, she developed some tumors in her lungs and her lung capacity just slowly got less and less. Um, because it was so gradual, though, her body just kind of adapted. And like when doctors would check her and they would say, holy cow, like her oxygen is so, so low. I don't know how she's, you know, functioning as well as she is, but it's just because her body just adapted to it because it was it was a slow growing thing that was going on. She was not eligible for any sort of organ transplants or things like that because of her condition. And there wasn't a lot that they could do for her. And so at one point she got pneumonia and that, you know, really took her down. Essentially, that's what eventually um, took her life. She, she spent a couple weeks in the hospital. She had to be on oxygen and I don't know everything that happened. It seems kind of blurry, partly because I was living away at college. I only visited a few times while she was in the hospital. She, she was there for maybe a couple weeks. I think that's my best recollection, but we knew her life was coming to a close. There was a time where my whole family gathered in the hospital to visit her and we all just talked and laughed and joked and we sang songs. We were probably quite irreverent, but I think it was actually really good for my sister's health. Like she actually got a lot better after that happened. And the doctors were like, you know, she, she made an improvement just based on her, you know, mental state of just like being surrounded by happiness and, and everything. And and we kind of loved that. So she was well enough that my parents could take her home. And so They brought her home and within a week she passed away in the night. My mom woke up in the middle of the night to find her on the couch looking like she was asleep, but she was gone. I was 20 years old and she was 25 at this time. It's it's kind of weird to have a death like this in some ways because I think I was always taught in the church that essentially she was extra righteous and so she didn't have to be tested And that essentially she was like part of our test and us as her family, we were being tested to see how we would handle having, you know, someone in our life like that. And I know that the church didn't always teach that, but that's what I was always taught. I know previous to that, I think there was a teaching about people who were born handicapped. It was a curse because of their unrighteousness, which is so shitty. But I was never taught that. I was always taught that she was perfect. 
Um, like for instance, she didn't need to be baptized. She didn't need to go do her temple work. She didn't have to make covenants. She was essentially already promised celestial glory. She just needed to come here to get a body. So it's, it's really this strange thing because I think it gives you peace about that person's hard situation and what they're dealing with and, and the fact that they're kind of put in a shitty life. It's supposed to make us feel better, but I'm not sure that I'm buying that that's true necessarily anymore. And also, I think in some ways it makes you think that their death is a blessing because they're being freed from the hard stuff. So I kind of struggle with how I feel about this now because I don't really know what I believe about it. I wasn't ever super close to her because it was like, you know, you couldn't have real communications or get to know each other really on a personal level. She was just someone that my mom always took care of. I never really helped take care of her. I feel guilty about that. I got the news about her death in the middle of the night. I lived about an hour away, so I jumped straight in the car and drove home. I don't know what I expected when I got home, but as soon as I opened the door, I felt her presence. It it was strange, but it was there was no question that I immediately thought to myself, "Oh, she's she's still here." Because it it made me pause because I thought that I would feel her absence, but I didn't. So that was a profound experience for me. We spent some time as a family praying and talking and hugging and crying. And, and in the days following, you know, just people come out of the woodworks and just, you know, take care of you. The ward was wonderful. People were wonderful there. Her funeral just, we just had an outpouring of love from everyone. And you know how they do like the family prayer and basically everyone says their final goodbyes. Well, when they closed the casket. My mom was just a puddle of tears and she hugged my dad. And that might not sound like it was very profound, but I only ever saw my mom cry very few times. I, I don't, I saw my mom get emotional about spiritual things, but I never saw my mom cry in sadness, if that makes sense. And the other thing I never saw was my parents hug. It was that was the very first time for sure that I ever saw them hug. So that was that was weird for me. Um, I spoke at her funeral along with two of my other sisters. And that was weird. One thing that we experienced at her funeral is at the end, you know, the bishop stands up and does kind of his his final message or whatever to the congregation. And he basically called out my older sister, who was living in another state at the time, was married to a guy. They didn't get married in the church and or in the temple. They weren't attending church. And but they were there at the funeral. And he basically called them out and said, it's time to come home. Uh, I remember those specific words. And he basically said, hey, it's time to get your shit together and go to the temple and get active in the church. And at the time I thought, oh, that's, you know, so beautiful and so great that he was able to do that. But then I'm like, dude, that was incredibly manipulative and kind of inappropriate for him to do that. Like 
in that circumstance, kind of using my sister's death as a manipulation. And I think that the church does this so often. And in fact, I'm going to, I'm going to do another episode kind of specifically about death and how the church uses it and how, you know, the promise of being sealed together forever is a manipulation and kind of anyways, along those lines, um, that episode will be coming up soon, but I, I just really felt like it was kind of gross for that to happen. And, you know, not at the time, but now looking back, I'm like, what the heck? Like, I don't, I don't think that that's very cool that he did that, but Anyways, so the other thing, okay, so that was that. Um, life went on. So the other thing I didn't mention in my earlier episode is when I went through the temple for the first time. I got my endowments out before my mission. So both my parents and my one older sister went through with me. Remember, my other older sister hadn't been to the temple yet and got called out by the bishop, right? <laughs> but going through the temple was so strange for me. It didn't make any sense. I essentially remember thinking this is a different religion than what I thought I belonged to. Like this is not the same church that I always thought I belonged to. I thought that the robes and the aprons and the veils, it was all super weird. I also thought that the movie about Adam and Eve was so weird and basic. Like I was confused thinking like, this is it. This is what they teach you in the temple. Like we already know this stuff. This is like, this is like the, the most basic stuff ever. I thought I was going to like learn stuff that was super revelatory and super important stuff that I'd never heard before. But I don't know. I just remember thinking that's it. I hated the part about obeying my husband. Firstly, because I wasn't getting married. So it felt like a non-covenant, like I couldn't fully make that covenant unless I was getting married. So that felt weird and also super sexist and gross. I never got on board about that, but I justified it by saying that, you know, essentially we're, we're saying we'll obey him, but it's predicated on him obeying the Lord. So it's basically the same thing <laughs> as obeying the Lord, right? <laughs> I remember going into the slush room and looking at like the looks on my family's faces and realizing that I had no idea that there was this like whole other part of their lives that was like secret and weird. Like my parents went to the temple all the time and I'm just like, how did I never know any of this stuff? Like I was so freaked out and I never loved the temple. I always struggled with it, even though I tried to go often and just learn the stuff and tried to feel the spirit. I think like there's this idea that like if you don't get it or you don't feel the spirit that something's wrong with you and you just haven't learned what it is you're supposed to learn yet. So, oh, you just have to keep trying. You just have to keep working at it, right? So anyways, this going to the temple was about eight, nine months after my sister died. And then I went on my mission and you know that story if you listen to part one. If you haven't, go back and listen to that. So now I am starting from the time my husband and I got married, which was 35 days after I got home from my mission. So we started our life together. We lived in downtown Salt Lake near the U. He was finishing up school and working and I just worked full time. I didn't really have any desire to go back to school. Like I had done like two years of college and I was like, meh, I'm done. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I think in the back of my mind, it was always like, well, I'm just going to get married and have kids and my husband's going to financially take care of us. I don't know. But adjusting to married life was so easy. 
everyone, I remember so many people like warning us that it was going to be hard. It was going to be a huge adjustment, but it was literally the easiest thing I'd ever done. (laughs) We must just be like a really compatible couple, but we never fought like maybe one sort of fight in our whole first year. Like we, we were just best friends. We were on the same page about life and what we were doing. I got called to be the Relief Society president of our student ward about six months after I got married. And I remember when the bishop came over and gave me that calling. He came to our house and I thought he was coming to give my husband a calling. And when he asked me to be the Relief Society president, I thought he was joking. Like I was shocked. I was like, you cannot be serious. But of course, you know, I accepted the calling because that's what you do. Um, I loved it. I actually did really love it. I loved serving with the sisters and a student ward is totally unique in that everybody's your age. Essentially, everyone's kind of in the same phase of life. It was a ton of work, but it was it was a lot of fun as well. I had a few friends that really kind of started having babies really quickly. And of course, lots of women in the student ward having babies. And I don't know if it was really that But I think that I was like starting to bring up having a baby and when are we going to have kids? And uh, my husband was just not having it. I I don't know if I was trying to like keep up with other people, but he was not on board yet. And so we didn't talk about it a lot, but I just remember bringing it up to him once or twice. So a few months later, my little sister found out that she was pregnant. She wasn't married and she was 19. The day I found out, we, me and my husband were on a date and we were talking about how weird it was that she was going to have a baby. And then I realized, hey, I think I'm a few days late on my period. (laughs) I had not ever considered that I could be pregnant, but it occurred to me suddenly that like, oh, I think I was supposed to start my period like three days ago. And I was on the pill, but Even though we didn't really think I was pregnant, we decided to go get a pregnancy test because we were like, hey, that would be super weird. So we got the test and we went home and I took the test and it came back positive. (laughs) We were shocked, but I think we were both excited, like more like scared excited. But yeah, totally unplanned. I only learned later that I was kind of doing the birth control pill wrong. I don't know. I freaking hate the pill. I've never done it since then, but apparently I was doing it wrong. It's not it's not very self-explanatory if you're <laughs> dumb like me. But anyways, that was super interesting because I found out that my due date was within two days of my sister's due date. So it was really fun to like experience our pregnancies together. She ended up getting married and moved to Salt Lake pretty close to where we were living We actually, by this time, let's see, was that? Yeah, we moved a little bit further south around that time. I I think we moved like every year, you know, our first few years. But I ended up having a boy three days before she had a girl, and it was just a lot of fun. We spent tons of time together with our babies. After my maternity leave, I planned on going back to work, but I went back to work, and I think I was there for like a week, and I hated it so much. I was still so emotional. I was trying to breastfeed. I was trying to pump in the bathroom on my lunch break, and it was just like I felt like I could not mentally handle it, and I could not handle like leaving my kid. I don't even remember who watched him now that I think about it. I can't remember who watched him that week, but essentially, I I quit my job, and 
actually a week after I'm kind of bouncing around a little bit here. Sorry about that. But a week after our son was born was when my husband graduated from the U. So a lot was happening. <laughs> but after my maternity leave, I quit and my husband ended up having to take on a second job to financially support us. And it, it was a little bit tough. So he did that. He just was freaking awesome. He, yeah, while I worked my shit out and got my mental health back in order and was able to leave my baby, by the time he was nine months old, then I was ready to go back um, part time. So I did that. Um, at about 18 months old, we um, when our son was 18 months old, we bought our first house and I still juggled part time work and, and being a mom and my son was super smart. He was talking like a lot by 18 months to two years. He was speaking full sentences and I'm not talking like baby talk. He was like talking very clearly, very like almost kind of adult-ish and like other people could understand him. Like, you know, when you hear a lot of times when you hear a two-year-old talk, they're saying words, but nobody can understand them except for their mother. No, that was not the case with my kid. He was he was just speaking so clearly and articulately and like in full sentences by the time he was two. It was it was crazy. But he also started having lots of tantrums. He was very opinionated. He wanted to make all of his own decisions. He did not want me to tell him what to do. And for some stupid reason, reason I constantly thought that I had to basically force him to do what I wanted him to do so that he would grow up to be a responsible human. And clearly he rejected my control and trying to force him to do anything. So when he protested, I pushed harder. And the harder I pushed, the worse he got. And I'm talking about stupid things like, like what he wore or how he cleaned up his toys or when he cleaned up his toys or potty training. Oh my gosh, that was the worst. I knew he was smart enough to get it and to succeed at it, but he was stubborn as shit. If he thought that I wanted him to do anything, he would immediately do the exact opposite thing. And I seriously started to wonder if he had oppositional defiant disorder, which was something I had heard about at the time, but I didn't really know what it was. He was just over three years old when I first got pregnant with his little sister and he was really excited and he was the one that like told everybody, I'm going to be a big brother. And he was just so cute about it. He was such a sweet kid to everyone else. He was, you know, very social. He loved his aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents and, and all of that. He was, by the time he was three, he was like memorizing songs, his alphabet. He could recognize all of his shapes and letters. He knew all the names of the dinosaurs. He knew like all kinds of construction equipment, like dump trucks and excavators. And like we would drive down the street and he would point out signs and he would say, there's a K for, you know, Carrie or whatever. And he would like know what these letters, how they sounded, what they looked like and what word would start with them. Like it was crazy. He was just super, super smart. I worked with him a lot because I saw how easily he learned things and retained information. I read lots of books to him and he would end up memorizing the books so that he would just like recite it to me while I turned the pages. In fact, when he first went to kindergarten in his like initial kindergarten assessment, the teacher asked him to tell her about his favorite book. And not only did he tell her about it, he recited the entire thing word for word. 
It was so funny. So everyone was just so impressed by him, loved him so much, you know, just thought he was the greatest. But after like after we had his little sister, which was um, just before he turned four, he started to get even worse with his behavior around obedience. He saw how much attention the new baby got. And I think he hated it. He never took it out on her. He he only took it out on me. He would hit me, kick me, yell at me. Anytime I asked him to do anything, he would throw things at me. He would like throw himself on the floor, have the hugest tantrums you've ever seen. Everywhere we went, if he did not get his way, he would freak out. And I would get so embarrassed and also pissed that I couldn't control him, right? And then 15 months after having the first daughter, we had another daughter. So now he had two little sisters stealing his spotlight. And the crazy thing was that he could act like a perfect angel around everyone else. And then he would just be the biggest little shit you've ever seen around me. So it was almost like people didn't really believe me that he was an asshole. <laughs> and I did not know what I was doing as a mom. I had no good examples of loving, nurturing, mothering. All I knew was like military style barking orders and expecting perfect obedience. So, you know, my daughters, they were just born so easy. They were the sweetest babies ever. They were agreeable. They were mellow. They were easy to please. And I actually resented the fact that so much of my time was dealing with my son and his tantrums or his acting out that it often made me, you know, just in a bad mood. And so then therefore my girls got a grumpy, frustrated, exhausted mom all the time. It was around this time that I started having really bad anxiety. My Anxiety was always connected to illness, disease, or death. Mostly I was anxious about my husband dying. If he was even a few minutes late home from work, I would start planning his funeral. I'm not even joking. Like I would start rehearsing in my mind how I was going to tell his family that he was dead. Shit like that. Like it was terrible. I constantly thought that I had cancer or some other terminal illness I constantly had just so much fear and anxiety about, you know, anything bad happening, just bad things happening. And I think that like, I think this is connected to the church as well, because there's this foreboding joy that happens when your life is really great that you end up thinking, okay, well, something bad is going to happen because my life can't just be great. It has to be trials too, right? And so that's kind of, I think, where my anxiety came from, because my life seemed on the surface pretty, pretty easy, pretty, pretty easy going. Like we were stable. Of course, my son was a shit. But, you know, for the most part, you know, lots of kids are shits. I didn't necessarily think that I was, you know, had anything really unique. I just had one really hard kid. But it was at this point that I finally, you know, went on some medications and, and things kind of slowly got better over around the anxiety part. During this period of time, I started serving. Well, I went through lots of different callings. First, I was a beehive advisor, and then I got called into the primary first counselor position. And remember, I had two babies under 15 months old at this time. So that meant that I had to do sharing time while trying to wrangle two babies. My husband was 
I don't know. He had another calling that kept him busy during that time. I can't remember what, but we would try to juggle that. And it was so incredibly hard. So after I was in the primary presidency for several years, I got called back into Young Women's as the camp director. I did that for a couple years and loved it. Um, then we built a house and moved to another city. And as soon as we moved to our new ward, I got called to the primary presidency. I didn't serve there for very long because our ward got split shortly after we moved in. There was a lot of new construction, new homes, new people building, moving into the city. So in our new ward, I immediately got called as the second counselor in the Relief Society president. I did that for a couple of years and then our ward split again and I got put back in primary as a teacher and then our ward got split again. Like I swear it was almost every year or two we got split for the for those first few years. Um, so that time we got split again and they actually like just created a whole new ward from like pieces of different wards. And so every single calling in this new ward was brand new. And I was put in as the first counselor in the young women's presidency at this time. So by this time, my son was like 13 or 14 and he was already pulling away from the church. I mean, again, this was the theme of his life was to do the exact opposite of anything I wanted him to do. <laughs> so I was working with the girls that were his same age and I was going to all the activities every week and and he rarely went. He started fighting with us about going to church and I really dug in my heels and fought back. And it was like I was determined that no kid of mine was going to go inactive. And if he wanted to live under my roof, he had to abide by our rules of going to church every week all that kind of stuff. Right. And so he was enrolled in seminary. Um, he had a decent teacher, but one time the teacher made a comment that any boys who don't go on a mission, you'll never be able to find a good girl to marry you. And he came home and told me that, that that comment had pissed him off and it pissed me off too. I told him that wasn't true and that felt super manipulative. So yeah, I did not like that, but it's like I could see other people manipulating him and be pissed, but then I would manipulate him and feel totally justified in it. Like, well, this is how I guide my kid to do the right thing. You know, this is how I get him to obey or or this is how I get him to believe in the church or this is how I whatever. Right. And when it came to going to church on Sunday, it was like, well, if you don't go to church, then you lose your phone or you lose your Privileges to hang out with your friends, or you get grounded, or you get this, or you get that, you know. Um, there was always like punishments involved with it. It's like, you could make that choice, but I'm going to make it pure hell for you if you do make that choice, right? And so that was just like a really hard time. I mean, <laughs> there's a theme here, isn't there? Hmm. Seems like all of these years were hard with him, but. He has ADHD and I think he was diagnosed uh, late elementary, but he never um, medication was just never, it never helped him. It, the side effects were so much worse than any help that it gave him. So just we kind of I don't know. I think we tried medications multiple times, but we also gave up on medication. So. Any kind of kids who are not neurotypical. The school system just isn't set up for their success at all. It's really frustrating. There were times when I wanted to homeschool him, but I also knew I was not really adequate to do that. He was also smaller than mo most of the other boys his age, so he got bullied a bit for that. 
he didn't really tell me about most of like bullying, but occasionally he would tell me things. One day, day he came home from a particularly hard day at school when he was in junior high and I could tell like he was emotional and he sat down on the stairs and I sat next to him and we both just cried. And I remember so vividly feeling like, oh my gosh, I remember exactly what it feels like to be that age and to not love myself and to be so afraid of the world and all the hard things that are going on, you know, and it was hard to watch him go through it because I just wanted to like take that all away to fix it all to make it better. But so there were moments like that where, you know, we, we had good talks and where we bonded and where I felt really close to him. But I think the overall theme of our relationship was me trying to control him, right? He was so smart and articulate and sensitive and stubborn. All he ever wanted from me was probably just for me to allow him to make all of his own choices, to have autonomy, to be supported and encouraged. But for whatever reason, I think his stubbornness brought out my stubbornness and it was always a constant battle for, let's see, at about when he was about 14 or 15, I had my last daughter. So she was quite a few years behind the other three. Right. Um, he was a great help with her. He was always a fantastic big brother to all of his sisters. He's protective and loving and always looks out for them. You know, of course, that doesn't mean he was never mean to them because he was at times like every other brother is. And brothers probably should, you know, give their sisters crap sometimes. But for the most part, I always had kids who got along and loved each other. There was very little fighting or contention among my kids. It was all between me and my son, unfortunately. But I really like I really wanted our home to be a safe space where they weren't constantly fighting with each other, where they weren't being attacked. And I think for the most part, I succeeded in that. But where I have my sadness and shame around that is the contention that I brought, the the fighting that I caused, the shame and disappointment that I showed to my son for the most part. So by the time he was about 16, he had worn me down. I think the fighting about going to church every single week was wearing on me and making me resent and kind of hate him, actually, if I'm being totally honest. Um, and also him to me. I'm sure he hated me too. Every part of our relationship was hard. I was always pointing out everything he was doing wrong. And he was always trying to test my patience and do the opposite of anything I wanted him to do. So it was like this terrible cycle. And both of us not really wanting to give in. And again, that theme of like kind of neglecting his sisters because I was so busy parenting him all the time. And I mean, while I'm only talking about me in these scenarios, my husband was very involved in all the parenting stuff. We were on the same page for the most part. Almost every day we were having conversations about, you know, about our son, about what the best way was to deal with him. Or we would vent to each other about he said this or he did this today. Or, you know, we were always pretty supportive to each other about what was happening, but it was still so exhausting and discouraging. And it was embarrassing that I couldn't get my kid to do the things that I thought the kids at church seemed to be doing effortlessly. 
like every other person in our ward had happy families that all went to church and no one fought about it. <laughs> right. So I think it was around this time that I finally was just like enough. I'm just not going to fight with him on this anymore. And I told him, I'm like, okay, you're on your own. You make your own decision about church and I'm just not going to force you to do what I want anymore. I want to stop destroying our relationship because I had this thought that like, you know, the second he moves out of my house, he will never look back because of what I've put him through and trying to force him into a box that he doesn't fit into. And I just decided I didn't want that anymore. I would rather have a son who speaks to me <laughs> and who trusts me, which by this point, there was probably no trust between us and our relationship was not good, but I wanted that. And so there were moments where we felt connected. And of course I loved him, but I think that I truly did not know how to show unconditional love. I don't even think that I knew how to love unconditionally, period. So essentially at this time, you know, we just stopped making him go to church and he never went again. He was never ordained to be a priest. He never blessed the sacrament or anything like that. Up until that time, you know, he'd done all the the um, priesthood things. But our relationship started to get a little bit better. We still were hard on him to keep our rules and to go to school, which was hard. But it slowly got better. And right after he graduated from high school, which he almost didn't do, by the way, <laughs> It was right down to the wire where we weren't sure if he was going to graduate. But again, like I said before, kids who are not neurotypical do not thrive in our school system. They just do not. And I don't know how to fix that. I don't know how to make that better, but I recognized it. And I essentially said, you know what? It just is what it is. He just has to get through school. That's it. He He's not going to thrive, but he does have to finish. Right. And he doesn't have to get straight A's. He doesn't have to whatever, which he was so, so smart. But again, being smart does not equal thriving in the public school setting. And, and I realized I totally could have taken him out and done homeschool. But I think for me, I knew that I was not equipped to do that. And I still think I'm right about that, even though I'm sad and I realize homeschool or some other schooling situation could have given him a better shot or a better education more like, but it was hard. So we made it through, right? It was just like, oh my God, if we can just get him graduated from high school, right? So he did that. And three weeks later, he left for basic training in the army. Now, this army thing came up when he was a junior in high school. I think a recruiter came to his high school. And he just thought that would be the coolest thing ever, which is so ironic <laughs> because he was the kid that was so defiant of rules. <laughs> I just thought there is no way this kid hates being told what to do. He is going to hate the military. But my husband and I were like, well, that's what he wants to do. I mean, obviously, that's not what I would have chosen for him. But I was like, whatever, you know, you you want to do this, go for it. And surprisingly, he did better than I thought. He's still in the military almost six years later. He's on his second contract and plans to make a career of it. But the biggest thing to change our relationship comes a few years down the road when I have my faith crisis. So 
Shortly after he left home, my husband stopped believing in the church. Well, I guess he'd probably say that he never really believed or that, you know, he tried to live the gospel and he was faithful and he held all the callings and he always had a temple recommend, but he never really felt the spirit. He never had a testimony that it was true. He never got an answer to prayer, like all of these things, even though like he served a mission, he did all the things, right? So we started having conversations about this frequently and I was struggling and I just begged him to give it more time. I just was like, just keep praying, keep serving, keep trying, don't give up. And so he really did. He kept trying and he he stayed in a couple more years. In fact, he got asked to serve in the elders quorum presidency at this time. And I was like, oh my gosh. Well, I said, well, you know, what do you think about this? And I, I think you need to tell him the truth and, you know, tell him how you really feel. And so he did. And they still wanted him to serve. So he did that for a year. And then finally, he said he was just done. He couldn't keep pretending like he believed. He could not, you know, he felt like a fraud and he just didn't want to do it anymore. So he asked to be released and I was devastated. I felt like my family was totally slipping through my fingers. Like one by one, they were leaving. Both of my boys were now done with the church and it was just me and my daughters. I spent almost every week at church crying. <laughs> it was terrible. And, you know, like everyone feels sorry for you and pities you. And it just sucks. Like I remember people coming up to me and saying, oh, you're so brave to come here every week all by yourself. And oh my gosh, so, so, so rough. I would go into sacrament meeting and sit down and look at all the families that were there all together. And it was like a knife in my heart. Right. One time I sat down on a bench in sacrament meeting and I hadn't noticed that someone had put their scriptures there to save the bench for their whole family. And then I looked down and I saw it and, and I looked, you know, down the end of the aisle and saw the person who had put their scriptures there. And I was like, so embarrassed. I'm like, Oh, okay, I'll, I'll move. And so, you know, I'm getting up and moving as their whole family is coming in and filling up the row. And I just bawled. I could not, I could not control the wave of emotions that hit me. It felt like I was being kicked out and it felt like I had to move in order to make room for the faithful families because my family was no longer whole. And it just, it literally shattered my heart in a million pieces. I, I left church early that day and I just drove around bawling my eyes out, literally just bawling my eyes out. Um, after my husband stopped going, it got harder and harder to get my kids to want to go to church. Right. And my, my two older daughters, again, they are like, seriously, the easiest, most agreeable kids. And I think that they saw the pain that I was feeling. And therefore, especially my oldest daughter, she felt like, she she was in charge of making me feel better and how she did that was she went to church and even though she never had a testimony and she didn't want to go she saw how sad I was and she just like basically made the determination that well I'm just going to go to church because that's what my mom needs and I didn't know that at the time but I 
know it now. And it just makes me really sad. Um, she's very much a people pleaser. She's very much just like me, you know, and how many women in the church are raised to be to just worry about everyone else's feelings and what everybody else thought and how to make everyone else happy. You know, you're just in charge of everyone's feelings sometimes. So I kind of slowly accepted, you know, my husband's decision and got used to it. And I stopped worrying as much about it and, and what everyone else thought. Um, but of course I was still sad that my husband wouldn't be with me after this life or actually I never, I never thought that he wouldn't be with me after this life. I never thought that he was a bad person. I just realized that we wouldn't be able to go to the celestial kingdom. And I was like, okay with that because I was like, well, I'd rather be with him in the terrestrial kingdom. These are the thoughts I'm having in my brain. Right. I'm like, well, I guess I'm not going to the celestial kingdom and I'm just going to, you know, be okay with that. I'm, you know, I'm kind of an underachiever, <laughs> but I always kind of had hope that like, that like he would change his mind and he would come back and he would make little comments about the church that were negative, but nothing like super harsh. He would just kind of, he would kind of ask questions that really made me think, but I would defend the church and just matter of factly state my testimony and my belief and move on. We never really got into arguments over it, but I could tell that he was kind of planting some seeds of questions in my mind. And we did have some good conversations. And I think it's just because of pure respect for each other that, that helped that situation a lot because I didn't, I didn't look down on him and think that I was better than him. I genuinely knew how good he was. And it was surprising to me after time went on that I was like, Oh, he's still a good person, even though he doesn't go to church anymore. Cause I was afraid, you know, if you stop going to church, you're going to, you know, cheat on your wife and abandon all your kids and all these things. Right. And none of those things happen. So I think just time was a huge factor for me in helping me to recognize that like, Oh, this isn't changing anything. Like we're still, we're still really good. Right. So in 2019, my daughter, who was in ninth grade at the time, came out to me as bisexual. I don't remember like a lot about this conversation. And I still think I, I feel like she was still in a phase of trying to figure out exactly how she identified, but she knew she wasn't straight. So I did not see this coming at all. <laughs> I've talked a lot about this, so I won't go over this whole story again, but suffice it to say that I struggled, I was shocked, I immediately had so much cognitive dissonance about what I had been taught my whole life and how that didn't match up with how I felt about my daughter. And that's what started my whole faith crisis. And within 12 months of that, I was a totally a non-believer. And during this time, my son was overseas deployed. And so he wasn't watching in real time my faith crisis unravel. Right. But we would talk every couple of weeks and I would tell him little things that I was learning. And he was, he was supportive and he was happy for me, but he didn't really share a lot of things back and he didn't push me towards it at all. Um, I think he just, he knew me well enough to know that I would get there. Right. <laughs> and in one of the conversations that we had, he ended up telling me that he had already resigned his membership that he did it on the day he turned 18 through quit Mormon. And it, I mean, I'm glad he didn't tell me at the time that he did it because that would have totally freaked me out. But yeah, 
he just, he hadn't told me. And this was several years after the fact. So once I left the church, my relationship with my son started getting significantly better. I stopped trying to, you know, shame or belittle or control his life choices. My heart and my mind opened so much to all the possible ways that people can live their lives and be totally happy. And it was just this realization that we didn't all have to follow this one prescribed path in order to be happy. There was also this shift of parenting of like, I went from being, you know, oh, I'm responsible for my kids, almost like an ownership of my kids. Like they have to do this and they have to do this because I say so, because they're my kids and this is what's supposed to happen to my kids became separate humans from me. And they suddenly, like, I didn't need to control them. I stopped seeing them as my possessions. I stopped seeing their choices as a reflection of me. Like, it was such a bizarre shift that I did not expect. Like, absolutely life-changing shift. My three older kids, they're all adults now, and we're pretty open. We talk about... Like, we just talk about the real things. We don't just have surface relationships where we only talk about rainbows and butterflies. I don't feel so much pressure to have a certain type of family and to constantly strive for perfection. I didn't see that when I was in the church. I thought I was like happy and fulfilled and oh, my life is great and it's fine. And I don't, I didn't see myself as striving for perfection. But it, once I got out, I realized all the toxic parts that were hurting my ability to just freaking love my kids unconditionally. Like, I'm just starting to recognize how almost impossible. I'm sure it's not impossible because I know there are parents out there who have always loved their kids unconditionally. But when you recognize that our version of a father in God is a controlling and conditionally loving God who says, I love you, but you better obey me or I am going to send you to hell or I'm going to throw a really hard trial at you. I'm going to make you suffer. Like this is such a gross example of a father, right? And when I recognize that like, wow, I can love my kids way better than Mormon God ever loves his kids. That was just life-changing for me. Um, when I first left, I, I thought, well, I'm going to give all my kids their, you know, let them make a decision about whether to stay or leave. And my youngest daughter was just about to turn eight. And my husband and I had talked about it and said like, well, I guess if she wants to be baptized, we should let her be baptized. I mean, all of our other kids are baptized. Maybe it's weird not to baptize her. Um, but of course, she'd have to have like an uncle or somebody else baptize her. But as the months went on, I felt stronger and stronger about not letting her get baptized until she's older and like could make an informed decision. Right. I started thinking like at eight years old, she has no clue. She doesn't know what that commitment is she's making. She doesn't know what she wants. She doesn't, you know. And so the first time we brought it up to her, we were just like, hey, you know, when you turn eight, you know, in the church, they... They want you to get baptized. So is that something that you want to do and or whatever? I don't even remember how we brought it up, but essentially she just decidedly said, nope, I do not want to get baptized. And we were like, okay. And that was literally the end of it. 
And we've had conversations since then where she tells me that she never liked church or she never understood it or she always thought it was weird. Or even now she'll like say, like, why do Mormons believe such and such? That's so weird, you know? And I try to really like, I try to explain to her like different people's differing beliefs and why they believe what they do and, you know, why they feel the way they do. And I I don't want her to be thinking that all Mormons are weirdos and I don't want her to be disrespectful of them, but I also want her to be able to set boundaries and to be made to feel like she gets, you know, she gets to choose what she believes in and what she doesn't. And I don't want her to feel like less than because she doesn't go to church. And so far that's been pretty easy because she has mostly non-member friends. And I don't know if that's just like she's drawn to those kids or maybe the members like stay away from her or something. I don't know. Um, But the topic doesn't come up like super often um, among her and her friends. Like it's just not something they it's almost like she's kind of unaware. And here's the funny thing about my youngest child, you guys. She is her brother reincarnated. (laughs) She is an exact replica of him, but in a girl form. It is so weird how much she is him. And there's this really interesting dynamic because I, in so many ways, I feel like I'm raising the exact same child again, but I get another shot at doing it and I get the chance to not fuck it up so much, you know, and there are some there are some significant differences between her and her older brother. But the main differences I kind of attribute to my difference in parenting them. Does that make sense? Like I give her so much more autonomy I let her do what she wants. I I do not have like this iron fist and try to control her. She never throws tantrums because she gets to make her choices that she wants to make. So it's this really interesting, you know, like <laughs> sometimes I think parenting is like the worst experiment ever because <laughs> I royally fucked up my son. But I mean, it's all I knew at the time. You guys, nobody sets out. And says, I'm going to fuck my kid up or I'm going to do a terrible job. I'm going to ruin my kid. Nobody says that. And I think most parents, not all, but most parents genuinely want their kids to be happy, healthy people. And that is what I wanted. So I can genuinely say I wanted what was best for my kid, but I thought what was best for him was to control him. So I now realize that what I was doing was not what was best for him. In so many ways, I tried to like break his spirit to make him conform. And he was just never going to do that. And it makes me sad. <laughs> I I get really down on myself for the mistakes I made. But I also know that like it doesn't do me any good. I'm probably going to be paying for his therapy for the rest of his life. (laughs) Um, I'm probably going to be apologizing for the rest of his life. I mean, I'm just going to 
all I can do is go forward and do better and give myself some grace for what I didn't know and what I didn't do correctly. My husband and I have been able to go down this path together and both of us are super interested in all things Mormonism. We listen to all kinds of podcasts and we always watch Mormonism live every single week together. It is our weekly date. We bond over all the stupidity and weirdness in Mormonism. We constantly laugh about how ridiculous it is. We will talk about memories of things we did when we were Mormon and how cringy it is, right? We've also been able to try alcohol and weed for the first time together because we never did any of that. Neither of us had ever done drugs or drank alcohol. So it's been really fun to explore that together. We're actually talking about trying mushrooms as well. I have family members and several other people I know that have done mushrooms and they say it's a pretty cool experience. So we'll probably try that soon. I've been telling him he needs to come and do an episode with me on the podcast, but he is really hard to convince. He's like, no, I, that's not for me. I don't like that stuff. So if you guys want to hear from my husband, (laughs) maybe if you guys say, yes, please bring your husband on, let him talk. I want to hear his story. Leave me a message. Send me a send me a message on Instagram or on dissidentdaughters.org uh, and tell me you want to hear from my husband or on YouTube. If you listen to this on YouTube, T- tell me you want to hear from him if you want to. And maybe I can convince him. But life is good. I started this podcast almost exactly two years after leaving the church. And I'm coming up on my one year mark of doing the podcast. So it's been a really interesting and fun adventure. It probably seems cliche, but life is so much better outside of Mormonism. And I could never go back, no matter what. It it will never happen. And it's funny because my mom will say little things like, it's not the end of the story. I still have hope for you. And I'm like, and I still have hope for you. (laughs) So I want to just say that if you are in the throes of a faith crisis, meaning like, you haven't hit the good part yet. You're just going through the really shitty free fall of insanity. I want you to know that it gets so much better. You have to learn to trust yourself. You have to listen to your own knowing and stop subverting your gut instinct for some something some old guy tells you. It finally feels like I actually have control of my own life. And I can love bigger and better than I ever could before. The capacity that I feel to love is so expansive. I didn't even know that was possible. So it just makes life so much more worth living. And it's just freer, lighter, and happier every day. That's it. So... Hang in there. If you're not there yet, you will get there. I promise. But it requires some work. It requires rewiring your brain. It requires changing some of those old thought patterns. It requires really getting to know yourself and trust yourself. And it will happen. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. If you enjoy this content and it's been helpful for you, don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast 
Leave us a review if you love us. And finally, if you feel so inclined, I would really appreciate financial support in this work. You can go to dissidentdaughters.org and donate, or you can go to mormondiscussionpodcast.org and choose Dissident Daughters in the drop-down menu when you go to set up your donation. You can do a one-time donation or better yet, set up a monthly donation of even five bucks. If you've left the church recently, you've probably experienced a 10% income increase. And here's a place where you can donate and know that you are supporting a fellow dissident daughter who wants to stick around and keep providing a supportive space for deconstructing our faith together. Thanks for all your support.